to Power Athlete Radio. This week, former SEAL, author, and speaker Jocko Willink joins the crew to discuss something he is all too familiar with, getting CEOs and even parents to embody the leadership qualities best suited to accomplish the task is what Willink does. It should come as no surprise that this author of Extreme Ownership does not believe in coddling or sheltering people from life's harsh realities. However, Willink has seen the benefits of empowering clients with leadership skills and self-awareness, enabling them to conquer life's hurdles. His unique military background has provided him with a deep understanding of the implications of core versus superior leadership. Now he shares his knowledge through his publications, podcast, and most recently, a children's book. Find out how you can strike the perfect balance within what Willink describes as the dichotomy of leadership. This is episode 202. Power Athlete Nation, what? is up you've got luke and john sitting here in hill country tex is over in some library study room just doing his kung fu thing uh no bed no room no couch no home a library full of rich mahogany and leather-bound books i thought he was in the library of congress mixed mental arts that's my my go-to mma mixed mental arts i i don't get it but let's barrel forward because i want to i want to keep this show plush and going but ladies and gentlemen Johnny, you ready for your? Uh, you are listening to Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast. Like Luke got this. Uh, you know, Jocko's probably sitting there being like, "Dude, these guys are fucking tarts." But uh, we got this turntable. Luke has this whole like command center thing going over here, yeah, and he's great. just like hitting buttons. So it's still novel. So it's yeah, pretty new for us. But you're here to hear, folks. And uh, John, there's a preview. John, John, let it rip. Our guest of the hour here, or maybe multiple hours, is going to be Jocko Wilnick. And uh, I guess a man who needs little introduction. I mean, he's been all over my social media feed. He's been all over the forums, or at least your name has been, uh, Jocko. And uh, we're super excited. And so is the, so are our listeners once we heard, uh, you know, we got you slated for the book. So if, in case there's somebody out there who doesn't know what you're up to, where you came from, who you are, Give us the one to 60 minute introduction on who is Jocko Wilnick. Well, I'm just a, a guy joined the military when I was young, out of high school. I spent 20 years in the military. When I got done with that, I retired and started working in the civilian sector. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. <laughs> there you go, the 10 second version. Uh, so Jocko, I mean, I guess, where do you want to start, man? I mean, we had some cool pre-show talk about an upcoming book. I don't know if you want to save that for the end or if you want to maybe talk about uh, just just your background and what makes you uh, a kind of a, I don't know, an, an apex well, type of individual. Well, and not only like a sought-after speaker, but also somebody who's going to write a book that potentially uh, changes people's lives. I mean, I'm sure you hear that all the time. I mean, I'm sure, uh, you know, you probably got 100 emails sitting in your inbox right now about how I read this book and it was the most influential thing in my life. And you're thinking to yourself damn, you must have been, had nothing happened before this. But I mean, uh, at this point, you know, how were you able to take your experience with over the last 20 years of being in the military and getting on the private sector and start applying it to people? And necessarily, why did people find that interesting? I always think it's pretty fascinating where, uh, you know, you run into uh, different corporate people. I mean, have been played in the NFL. People are so fascinated by it, but yet it just seemed like a job to me for a whole bunch of years. Yeah, so we ended up writing a book. I wrote a book with uh, a guy that worked for me in the SEAL teams named Leif Babin, who was one of my platoon commanders when we were over in Iraq. My last deployment to Iraq, which was in 2006, it was 
in a place called Ramadi, which at the time was the epicenter of the insurgency in Ramadi or in Iraq overall. And it was, it was a real tough fight. We learned a lot of lessons. We put a lot of principles and theories to the test and we came back with a lot of lessons learned. And, and when we came back, Leif, he took over the, the, the block of training of when young SEAL officers get out of, get out of the basic SEAL pipeline. And he took over that officer training right there. And I took over the, the training for the West Coast SEAL teams, which is the training that is not what you see on TV. You know, the training that you see on TV is guys carrying logs around and guys carrying boats on their heads and guys doing a bunch of pull-ups and push-ups and dips. And, and that's cool and everything. But the training that I ran was the, the tactical training where guys learn to shoot, move, and communicate, where guys learn to work as a platoon and as a task unit, and where the guys learn about combat leadership. So I took over that training, and I ran it for the last about three years I was in, and, and then I retired. But the lessons that we learned in Ramadi is what we taught. And then when, when I retired, I or actually it was just before I retired, a guy that I knew that was the CEO of a company, he, he said, hey, can you come and talk to my executives about, you know, about combat leadership? And I said, yeah, sure. And I went up and I actually took the brief that I would give to the young SEAL officers and the young SEAL or the, the SEAL enlisted leadership. I took that brief and I declassified it and I got it cleared. And then I brought it up and I, and I briefed these executives on combat leadership. And when I got done, the, the CEO, he came up to me and he said, I want you to do this for every division of my company. And I said, well, I'm kind of retiring, you know, so maybe not. And he said, I'll pay you. And I said, well, maybe okay. So I did that. I, I did the uh, multiple more briefs for his divisions. And at one of the divisions, his, the, parent, the CEO of the parent company was there listening. And when I got done with that one, he came up to me and said, hey, I want you to do this brief for all my CEOs. So went and did the brief again. Now there's 40 or 50 CEOs in the room of you know, good-sized companies, not all of them huge, but all of them decent size. And a bunch of those CEOs, when I got done, come, came and said, okay, can you come and do this for my company? And next thing you knew, uh, next thing you know, I had, a, I had another business on my hand teaching and, and relaying the lessons I learned in combat to, to, you know, the corporate world. And then at some point along the line, the people, you know, I, Leif, he got out of the Navy too. I retired and he got out of the Navy and he started doing the same thing and eventually we, you know, we would get asked all the time, hey, do you have this stuff written down anywhere? Do you have these lessons in a handout we could give to the people that couldn't make it to the meeting? So we said, yeah, you know, let's write this stuff down. So when we wrote it down, you know, a literary agent got a hold of it, brought it to a publisher. A publisher said, I want to publish this. So we published it and then the book did really well. So that's the, that's the sounds so easy. Like it just kind of stumbled almost like Forrest Gump. You just sat down on the bench and next thing you know, the, uh, the feather started going. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm like, Mr. Hey, you need to do your planning. You need to have a, a six month plan and a one year plan and a five year plan. I didn't plan for any of this stuff. And, you know, I just was doing what I do and, and, you know, I was pretty lucky in, in having all this stuff unfold. So. so through the process, Jocko, was there a lot of back and forth with these people, with the CEO audience that you were presenting to? I mean, is that, did, did it ping pong back and forth and that helped refine the message or was it just out of the gates? The brief was the brief and, and that's what stuck. Man, the basic brief that I used to give in the SEAL teams about combat leadership is literally the same brief that I give now to CEOs. The principles are the same because 
leadership is leadership. Whether you're leading, you know, guys out on the battlefield to capture, kill enemy, or whether you're leading in a business world where you're trying to produce something or sell something or manufacture something, you're trying to get a bunch of humans that are all individuals that are all crazy and have big egos and have their own agendas and have their own personality. You're trying to get all those knuckleheads to, to unify behind the same, you know, common plan and execute in the most efficient manner. So like I said, whether you're planning to go kill a bad guy or whether you're planning to go build a building, both those things take the same leadership principles to execute. Yeah. And that's, you know, Tex and I were talking about the book last time. I mean, what was it last week, Tex, when we were driving around, I forget what we were doing. And, uh, you know, it's just, we try to always make these connections between uh, other people who are putting together this principle-based philosophy where it, it is scalable to any any discipline, right? Leadership is leadership. And that's, that's the approach we took with the Power Athlete Methodology course is like, hey, okay, within the vein of strength and conditioning, you know, John, this is, I remember back in 2008 at the seminar I went to, people are asking all these granular questions. You're like, listen, man, athletes train like athletes. It doesn't matter if you're a 13 year old soccer player or, uh, you know, a, a 10 year NFL veteran, there are very, there are fundamental concepts behind the training that are universal, right? And they may vary in scale and amplitude based off of uh, yeah, but I mean the, uh, the discipline, but that's the problem it, is man. Uh, people fail to, you know, at the margins of their experience, right? And most people look everything on a one-to-one, this kind of granular level, like how does it affect me? And everybody has this idea that they're a unique snowflake and, you know, what do I need when they realize that, you know, for the most part, the fucking masses is pretty accurate for, you know, majority of the bell curve. And I know when I got out of the NFL and, you know, CrossFit hit me up and wanted to teach. And even when I got to go work with the SEAL teams and guys like Andy, uh, the one thing that was <clears throat> surprising to me is that they did not view themselves as athletes and didn't really understand that shit. It was just this idea that if it's hard, it's good. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, that was kind of strange. I'm like, well, what's your performance matrix? Like, uh, how do you know you're getting better each time? And then it's like, you know, when, then you just basically go back and you set them. Do you want to get stronger? You want to get bigger? You want to get faster? I mean, that was the one thing, especially with Andy, he was so fucking small. I'm like, Jesus, dude, you like got in a fight with a woman. I mean, what are you going to do? And he's like, yeah, but that was the, that was the seal mentality was that, uh, you know, long swim, big bench, you know, kind of triathlete model. Mm -hmm. And when I remember him talking to me about, uh, you know, more mission specific type things, it sounded like, dude, you sound more like a fucking linebacker an outside linebacker, you know, big, strong dude that can carry some shit and run in and kick ass and then get out of there and hopefully, you know, have enough capacity to be able to hike your ass out of there. And, uh, that was for me at least, um, you know, whenever people approached me about training or methodology in this, and I always asked me, I'm like, well, you know, what's the demand? What are we training for? What's the end goal? And then we just got to work backwards from it. And unfortunately people don't look at it like that. They kind of just randomly just throw shit on the wall, hoping to God that something sticks and, uh, it, it doesn't work like that. And, um, I think the reason why, you know, for us, we've been somewhat successful a little bit is the idea that, um, you know, there's a set of principles that regardless of what you want to believe mm-hmm. or what you think you can believe, you can't fucking skirt them. Right. You know, if you want to be an athlete, you got to be strong. You got to be stable. You got to be functional. I mean, you can be as mobile as you want, but mobility without stability is fucking injury. Um, you know, you can, you know, want to be able to execute something, but if you can't be able to carry the load to make it happen, it's fucking ridiculous. I'm sure for Jocko, I mean, you know, you're putting these guys through training. You're like, you're great in every way, but I wouldn't trust you because God knows you probably couldn't carry your rifle 10 feet. I mean, it's like all of these things and, and, you know, and he's in an interesting position, especially if you go, um, I I had the opportunity to go down and hang out with Andy a bunch when he was a buds instructor and seeing that evolution of training was hilarious because it was just about trying to fuck those kids out of quitting. 
and we're just trying to mind fuck them. And then all of a sudden they get through, they get through Trident and they go to somebody like you who all of a sudden now it's like, you made it through all that bullshit. All that was just a weeding out process. Now I need to make you into the person who potentially we need you to be because the same person that you're taking care of happens to be my buddy who you're going to go to a team. And um, I remember when that was explained to me, I was like, fuck, that's probably the best vetting process I've ever heard where you have people that have experience coming back and vetting the young guys to get them into a position because these are their friends that they're going to be working with. And um, now I was, that was pretty cool. But uh, for us, you know, really the idea of, developing athletes from the ground level and building them up based off the principles is mm-hmm. really how you should attack anything. And, uh, I'm actually talking right now, but I really just want to hear Jocko talk about, uh, how you, uh, this brief, I mean, uh, I'm, I apologize. I haven't read the book, but I will read the book probably this week. Uh, but I want to hear about the brief. I want to hear about combat leadership and I want to hear about, uh, you know, more importantly, the look on CEOs faces who are high powered, very successful, fucking big ego driven guys. When you get up and you present this shit in front of them and they probably look like, Holy fuck. I never even thought about this stuff. Yeah. Well, there's, it's interesting because the book, you know, the principles that are in the book are principles that everybody kind of knows, you know, and, and we didn't make any of them up. Some of them are a hundred years old. Some of them are thousands of years old. And yet there's so few people that can actually execute them and that follow them. And some, sometimes people get some of them right. Sometimes people don't get any of them right. Sometimes a company does one well, but not the other. So you get there, uh, you know, the CEOs that, that bring us on, generally they're bringing us on because they, they want to get better. So that means they have some level of humility in their own right. The, the times that we experience more of an issue is, let's say the board a board brings us in to help with a company that's having issues. And so the CEO is now, you know, he's not the guy that asked for you. And that's the reason he needs help. He's a guy that his ego is too big. He can't ask for help. And now, you know, when you roll in there, you're going to have to deal with this guy's big ego who thinks he's doing everything right. And by the way, if he was doing everything right, I wouldn't be getting the call. If he was doing everything right, then the company would be successful. So you're kind of like the Bobs from Office Space at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, <laughs> like you're rolling there like the Bobs, and you're like, what would you say you do around here? Yeah. yeah. And you just go in there and yeah. grow Yeah, you go in there and talk to these people. And like I said, we work with, most of the time, most of the companies we work with are good companies that want to, want to be better. And, but sometimes we are going into companies that they have major issues, and we're being brought into more of that Bob scenario from Office Space. we got to fix stuff and help them fix stuff. So that happens as well. But I think one of the big misconceptions is, you know, and, I, and I've, I had this conversation very early on with like one of the first companies we were, we were being asked to work with. with this CEO, you know, says, hey, I just can't wait to have you come in here and whip everyone into shape. And, you know, I, I emailed him back and I said, hey, um, just kind of FYI, whipping people into shape doesn't work. It doesn't, you're not going to get a team that's going to perform. It's just the same thing as beating a dog. I mean, you beat a dog enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll it'll break, it'll break mentally. And that's what happened with your people. If, so I'm not going to go in there and, you know, whip people into shape. What I'm going to do is look at what's going on and we're going to figure out how to pull this team together and get was them. It about the proverbial whipping into shape or like actually literally whipping them into shape. Like we're going to go out and fucking PT till you guys puke. Or was it more you just know, like a mental deal? Like I always think when people use these kind of innocuous situations, you know, statements like whip them into shape and you're like, define this. Is there going to be a whip? Is there going to, you know, like, like I always yeah, wonder what, what's the expectation in his mind. He's thinking I'm going to go in there and say, you guys got to do it better. And he's going to yell and scream. I don't yell and scream at people. I didn't yell and scream at people when I was in the military. I don't yell and scream at people now. You know, that's just, in, if you, if you get to a point where you have to yell and scream at your subordinates, then you're not doing a good job as a leader because 
I mean, you're obviously not communicating well because they're not doing what you want them to do, which is getting you to the point where you're yelling and screaming at them. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, Seems as crazy. far as physical activity with the with the we go out and do these things, we do do um, field exercises. Or they're not they're not carrying logs around. It's not like let's see how many push-ups you can do because because you know that stuff just doesn't matter in terms of leadership, you know. And, and, you know, people make a big deal out of SEAL training and especially the BUDS training like you're talking about. But like you said, all it is is weeding out. All it is is, hey, do a bunch of stuff that sucks for a long period of time and we'll get a bunch of people to quit. And then the people that are left want to be here, we'll teach them how to be SEALs. And people make a big deal out of SEAL training, but it's actually not that big of a deal. Like most people that are somewhat inclined to – make it through can make it through now most people don't i i get that but most people don't really want to be there i guess well so, i mean if, if you have intrinsic motivation and you can fucking suffer a little bit and you know like actually take in and you know deal with fucking bullshit i'm sure you can you know effectively get through it i mean i always laughed when uh i can't remember who told me but uh one of the seals was like i thought buds was great i'd do it again over again and i yeah, kind of laughed and it's actually uh, fun yeah, and, and it's like once you get past the whole like you know you know like everybody thinks they're taking it personal, and it's like just how you know once you get past that, it's better. And I kind of laughed a little bit. I thought that was a good uh, a good statement. But the uh, uh, you, then you even think it's even more ridiculous, like I do, that when you all of a sudden see like uh, them going in and doing buds type stuff for like a bunch of like college and professional sports teams, I like see that stuff and just kind of shake my head. I'm like, and, dude, and this is one thing I wanted to get into, Jocko, is kind of the misapplication of the purpose. So if the purpose is to weed out and toughen up and we know at the end of the day, the football team is still going to be there. This is not going to be what gets a player cut. Uh, there's a famous story of Denard Robinson, one of the best athletes in the NFL currently. He was the Michigan quarterback who didn't tie his shoes. He went through this whole training and then quit, but then he still started every single game his senior year. So are sport coaches just missing that point when they try to apply these um, – I guess, methods and tactics? Are they just neglecting all the principles? I think it's just people are misled. They think that going through SEAL training makes you tougher. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you, I, I'm telling you, when I showed up to SEAL training, there was no way I was going to quit. It wasn't happening. It didn't make me any tougher. I was who I was. It, it, it didn't. It's just you're going to go through. We're, all we're trying to do is get rid of a bunch of people. So, yeah, I think you're right. If at a, at a football team or at a sports team or at a company, what are you, what are you going to break people down physically to figure out if they really want to be there? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make much sense to me. There's definitely core principles of combat leadership that are way beyond some physical stresses on the body uh, that, that people might see because that's what they put on the news all the time because, hey, you're cold. And the other thing is like SEAL training, okay, you're cold and you're tired and you're you got some muscle fatigue and you haven't slept in a couple days okay that, that's actually a joke it's actually a joke when and, and the story that i always bring back to compare this to is when you get overseas and you're going to roll out on your 45th night in a row on a combat operation you're in a humvee you're the lead gunner in a humvee which means you're the guy that's standing up in the turret outside of the protection of the Humvee and you're getting ready to go out on this operation and on the way to the gate to leave the base, you go past this, this place called the vehicle graveyard 
which is completely filled with probably a hundred vehicles that have been blown up by IEDs, vehicles much bigger than Humvees, tanks and, and mine resistant vehicles and armored vehicles that have been blown apart, everyone in them killed, and they're all dragged back on the base and put in this vehicle graveyard. So you're gonna now go out on the street, the same streets where these vehicles got blown up and risk your life again. There's a decent chance you're gonna die and you're gonna do that tonight and you're gonna do it tomorrow night and you're gonna do it the next night. So that feeling compared to, hey, I'm cold, is just, it's no, it's no comparison at all. It just doesn't matter. That's so why- it's all about perspective. Yeah, yeah. And people make a big deal out of SEAL training. And I think people that, people that make a big deal out of SEAL training, maybe they didn't do much in, you know, in their career. And so they just, that's sort of the, the highlight of their career, which is, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. And I mean, the uh, mother one is, uh, I got an email the other day from a guy who told me that uh, at 40, he's in the best shape of his life. And he wanted to thank me. And when I responded, said, thank you very much for the email. I mean, it's great to hear when you send some stuff. Um, was it the what, rock? What the fuck were you doing in your twenties? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, people ask me that all the time and I'm like, I could fucking, uh, you know, go and do whatever you wanted, but, um, I'm probably never going to attain the level of fitness that yeah, I had. But John, my- see here, you're, you're an NFL athlete. And let me tell you what 95% of the fucking population does in their twenties. They try to hang on to college. Okay. I was there, bro. You got kids, you got buddies who are younger than you. You're still partying. You get this entry level job. You suffer, you fucking get paid dog shit. And you think that the goal is to get to middle or upper management. And you do that for five or six years and you sell your soul to the devil. You buy a house, you buy a car, you get a girlfriend, get a fuck, get two dogs. One might be blind, right? I, one I sense some three. resentment, Luke. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting salt you know, in your fucking voice. <laughs> and next thing you know, you take a look at yourself, you're like, what the fuck was I just doing the past eight years of my life? That's what people are doing. And then now why wait till 40? I don't fucking know. Maybe that guy did it for 12 years. But like, I mean, but if, if, you're in, if, if you can be in the best shape of your life at 40 years old, sure. I mean, unless you're the fucking rock, which he is in the best yeah, he shape. he gets a pass. Yeah, right? no, he's fucking phenomenal shape. Uh, like, what did you do in your 20s? What did you do in your fucking 30s? I'm literally telling you exactly what people are doing. And, uh, but they don't find training or they never played sports. Like Jocko said, like, th- maybe they literally have no accomplishments of playing youth sports or high school sports. Maybe they're a mathlete. And uh, th- I'm telling you, man, I think people get lost because of misappropriated goal setting from either parents who don't, I mean, it's not intentional. They just want the best for their kids and they think the best would be to get a job or, you know, the old fight club. I don't know, get married, have kids. Right. Um, so dude, that hit you at 40, man, at least you got him at 40 and he's not fucking 60 years old looking back and you know, we're going around in a wheelchair, uh, you know, type two diabetic. That's like, man, I wish I lift a weight. Well then, I was a kid. Well, and then we got uh, we got Jocko on the podcast, which is an even person, uh, perfect person to hit with this question. What do we need to do to change this so that I don't get any more emails from people asking or telling me that they're in the best shape of their life in their forties? Is it yeah, say, I is think it we're, we're definitely a bigger problem. I think we're definitely missing out these days on some level of physical culture, and I think you ever seen that? I forget what it is. Some high school in the 40s or 50s they ran this crazy badass pt yeah it was here in california it was um yeah there was uh it was here in california California. California. i'm sorry we're We're in in, texas well i I grew up in california lived in orange county we just moved out here to texas a couple months ago so when people uh um 
fucking ask me. I'm always like, yeah, yeah you're in California. Yeah, Pacific time. <laughs> yeah, Pacific time. <laughs> like I fucked up yesterday on a phone call. But uh, no, yeah, it was back in, uh, uh, I want to say it was somewhere in was like- it Corona or something? Yeah, no, it was Central California, like Ventura, that area. And I knew a guy who was actually in that, uh, that training program. Yeah, and, and it's uh, awesome. You see the videos or the go to YouTube and you check that out. All the kids are doing you know, all kinds of pull-ups. They're doing good gymnastics programs and they're sprinting. And that just doesn't happen anymore. It just doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, people are told, hey, I think it's because it's not a, it's not a level playing field. You know, f- physical strength and, and athletic ability is not a level playing field. It's not. And so, therefore, people say must not be good to push yourself as hard as you can. So let's just not push ourselves at all because Johnny isn't going to be as good as Mikey. And so let's just not do anything because Johnny was just born a better, you know, he's better physical specimen. And I mean, but isn't that life? Like you're going to naturally run into people that are better at certain things. I think everyone here is going to agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but like it's, it's, uh, I I always go back to the, um, uh, Charles Atlas, um, you know, and, uh, and even the, um, uh, who's the other guy? Um, was it Charlie Atlas, but it was also, um, uh, Sandow. So yeah. you, you, uh, he, if you read any of the accounts of him, he was like a sickly kid, um, was, you know, had problems with like, uh, you know, his lungs. I mean, you know, was the, you know, had all these problems and basically figured out that if he did some physical training, he would feel better and better. And he kind of got it in. And then, you know, now he's the, you know, Mr. Olympia, you know, carving that they hand these guys is up the sandow. I mean, and if you go back and you read any of these things, like a lot of people, and um, this is actually indicative of uh, a lot of high-level professional athletes, I'm sure for a lot of guys in your type of uh, former work, but were late bloomers. Um, you know, if you read the stories of, you know, countless professional athletes like, you know, the Michael Jordans who got cut off their high school team or, uh, you know, um, the linebacker for the Packers who didn't even get a scholarship and ended up walking onto USC. I mean, it just, you know, story Matthews. after story of these, yeah, Matthews, uh, you know, late bloomers. And it's all about this idea of like consistency and being able to, you know, even though you're not the best today, the idea of working and, and working towards a goal. I mean, today seems like people are like, well, I'm not the best at it. Fuck it. I don't want to do it, which is. So the long con. Grit. I think it's called grit. Well, grit. No, I, that's right. The grit. I sucked when I was younger and I didn't want to suck. And I had older brothers and they told me I sucked all the time. So I needed to like do something to not suck. And you just fucking keep doing it until pretty much you don't suck. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that fucking complicated. No, but it's, it's, I think instant gratification is what stymies that concept now, right? And, you know, maybe I kind of mentioned it earlier. And Jocko, maybe this is why a lot of the, the principles in extreme ownership are so scalable. Is like, you know, I referred back to folks maybe with misguided goals for their, their kids or, you know, that's a, my personal misguided because physicality and things like that. I think should be part of operating a kid, which John, you're, I mean, your kids are climbing everywhere. They're doing all sorts of, you know, jungle gym type stuff, but I'm going back to the extreme ownership. Um, how does this, I mean, you were a father for, is it the same principles and being a family leader as well? I mean, do you, do you find that parents, moms, dads, uh, or however they identify themselves come to you and, and they benefit from this type of deal? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're leading a family, you're still in a leadership position. And a real simple example here, you know, that we talk about in the book, and you can see it applied to kids real easily, is it's, it's really important that people understand why they're doing what they're doing, right? So anybody on your team, if they don't know why they're doing what they're doing, and all you're doing is tell them to do something, I mean, they'll do it, you know, they'll kind of, they'll say, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do, I'll do it. 
but they don't understand why. So when they hit an obstacle, they're kind of, kind of, they might stop. They might not push hard through that obstacle. And, and a classic example I use, because I got three daughters and one son. You know, I live in Southern California, so my son rides a skateboard. And you take a kid and you say, hey, when you ride your skateboard, son, I want you to wear a helmet. And is he going to wear a helmet when he's riding a skateboard? Probably no. Not. Now, if I'm there, he's going to wear it. Because, you know, he's not that stupid. But as soon as he goes around the corner, right, as soon as he goes around the corner, he's going to take his helmet off and whatever. Because all I told him was just wear your helmet. Now, if we go back and I say, okay, son, I want you to wear your helmet. And here's why I want you to wear your helmet. And I take him to a hospital and I introduce him to a couple kids that are 10 or 11 years old that are drooling on themselves with brain damage because they fell off the skateboard and, and, and banged their head and hit a curb. And now they're vegetables. And then I take them to a... a a cemetery and say this kid right here little johnny was skateboarding without a helmet fell off his now stands why i wanted to wear a helmet and he's much more apt to do that in fact he's gonna go out and tell his friends to wear their helmets so they don't end up in the hospital and it's the same thing with like physicality if you just tell your kids hey you work out because i told you to work out well, all it means to them is like you know a half an hour of pain but if you say, hey, look, this is why you want to be healthy. This is what it's going to give you the ability to do. This is the advantages you're going to have from being stronger. If you explain those things to your kids, yeah, they're going to be much more apt to do it than you just giving them an order. And it's the same thing in the military. If I say, hey, go do this mission like this, guys are going to say, yeah, we'll do it right now, I guess. But as soon as I'm not there to oversee them, who knows what they're going to do because they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So that's an example of how the, the principles that are in the book that are used to lead people on the battlefield and used to lead people in the corporate world are also used to lead your family. How do you scale that for five-year-olds? It's hard. It's fun. I'll tell you, with my kids, I initially pushed my, my kids really too hard and didn't, I didn't do a good job with – uh, really explaining why I was doing it. I, I kind of took an approach that, I'm, that I just explained was bad. And, you know, I just was, I just didn't get it at the time. I was just, hey, you guys got to get after this. You got to do this. And then as soon as I realized the mistake I was making and I backed off and said, hey, you know what? This is why you should do this. This is why it's beneficial to train. This is why it's, this is why these exercises will be helpful. This is why it's good to train jujitsu. This is, and I, when I started explaining it to them, it's when they were going, oh, okay, I, I understand now. And that's why it's, it's, it's more often. But we do the exact same thing with our kids. If you order your kid to clean their room, they don't understand why they're doing it. A five-year-old, right? Five-year-old doesn't understand why they're doing it. Dude, I've done this. Uh, I sit down and I explain everything. The reason we're going to do X is because we need to do, you know, they, this is how it all fits within the team structure. And I'd like, dude, I, I give them these talks and they just fucking class you. I'd stare at me with their mouth open. And I'm like, <laughs> and they just look at me and I'm like, not hearing anything I said. And I'm like, okay. So I always... <laughs> This is like, as I'm hearing this, I'm like, God, I tried this. And, uh, and then you get to the point where you're like, here's what I'm going to do. And I've, I've tried everything. Like, uh, I'm, I'm actually at the, at the reward system now. I have like a, a bunch of like change in a bowl. And they, uh, for some reason, my kids think it's fucking buried treasure. And I'm like, I will give you this one quarter if you can clean your room. And like, we have this whole like kind of barter system going because I can't, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, I'm hoping by the age of six, I can start making, uh, having it make sense to them. But uh, it's pretty interesting. Like some things I've been able to convince with them, like um, they understand that if they eat better, they sleep better and they feel better. And then they also uh, ask me, you know, as, as you know, kids have this incredible honesty. Uh, my daughter was like, why are some kids fat and some kids aren't? And I was like, 
I don't know. She's like, yeah, cause that girl. And I'm like, well, you know, what do they eat? And they were like telling me, they're like, oh, they eat these things, these lunchables and they're in these plastic things. And I was like, so the fat kids eat those. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, what are the kids that are in good shape? And they're like, their moms make stuff. I'm like, oh, so your mommy makes everything. They're like, yeah, mommy makes this. And then they came home. They're like, these kids are making fun of our lunches. Cause my wife's like, uh, you know, like we basically like same thing I do, like whatever we make for dinner is what we eat for breakfast kind of deal. I'm not really big on like breakfast, lunch and dinner, it's just meals. So whatever we have, they just basically get us their lunches. And, uh, the kids were like making fun of them. And, uh, I was like, do you have a problem with that? And they're like, no, they're kind of chubby kids. Yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, dude, this is so fucking hilarious. But they, uh, like, um, you know, but like the physical skills and all the things like, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I just am at a point and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I'm at a point where I'm pulling my fucking hair out trying to reason with five-year-olds. Yeah. And it is hard to reason with five-year-olds. You, sometimes you got to look for something that they're going to understand. You know, one of the things that helped me with my kids when they were that young was, Hey, clean in your room. If there's a fire, or there's an emergency and your room's not clean. And I come in here to rescue you, or a firefighter comes through that window and he's tripping and falling when he should be saving you. There's nothing we're going to be able to do then. It's too late to clean your room then. Little things like that. Um, oh, I'm trying that tonight. Yeah. I'm on it. I'm on that shit tonight. You might have to get a little bit more creative with the, uh, with the explanations. Well, the, uh, um, yeah, I mean, my, uh, so, uh, yeah, dude, it's, it's, it, the, the irony of this is like, uh, my daughters have like, uh, you know, razor scooters or whatever, and they, um, you know, have the big razors cause they didn't want the little kid ones. So the handles go up high, which is too high for them, but they don't want to put it down because they somehow equate that with baby stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching them on the razors and they're fucking bombing down this hill and I'm thinking to myself, they're going to kill themselves. And then my daughter who is wearing a helmet decides that, uh, her favorite outfit for that day is going to be a bikini and, uh, like, a and, and the cowboy boots road rash is coming. So she comes out literally five years old. She's like rocking cowboy boots and has her like swim outfit on and, uh, but a helmet. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, God damn it. This is, this is my life right here. I'm like, and then we got to go back inside. Let's put on some pants. Let's do all this. And she's like, what? I can't wear a bathing suit. No, I'm wearing the helmet. I'm like, Oh God. So now dude, it's, uh, yeah. Reasoning with five-year-olds is probably slightly easier than what you had to do going in and working with a bunch of CEOs that have big egos that, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm CEO of this fortune five and have a company, you know, how are you going to tell me how to do this? Or do you find that people, because of your previous, you know, because of your, let's say your, your pedigree and who you are and what you've done that instantly people just give you respect. Yeah. That doesn't happen with my kids. So, <laughs> so it doesn't, they're like, who the fuck is Jocko? Uh, <laughs> but actually, you know, same kind of vein. My, we had this coffee table when one of my daughters was learning to crawl and kind of get around and she kept banging her head right on the corner, really sharp coffee table. And my wife's like, get this thing out of here. And I go, no, the kid will learn. And just, you know, she'll learn to avoid it. Boom. Nails it again. And I said, my wife said, get this thing out of here. I said, look, the, the child must learn to avoid this. So we can't just move obstacles for her all the time. And we, she needs, and my wife said, okay. 10 minutes later, bangs her head on it again. She get this thing out of here. I'm like, okay, it's gone. Because <laughs> like, like at a certain point, you know, they're too young to understand. They're too young to correlate why. They're too young to understand those things. So, so yeah, sometimes you've got to clear the path. The thing that I say with raising kids, though, is, if you're helping your kids, you're hurting your kids. And obviously you can't take that to the extreme, but something as simple as tying their shoes, when, you're, when their kids are tying their laces on their shoes, as you know, they're developing their fine motor skills. They are, they are actually developing their fine motor skills at that time doing that job. So every time you tie them, you're taking some little, some little neuro tr- transmission is not happening because of what you're doing. And the same thing with making sandwiches. Like, yeah, I can make a sandwich in three seconds, and it'll take my 
you know, my daughter, when she was, you know, five or six years old, it would take her 15 minutes and it would taste like crap, but she's doing all those motor skills. She's figuring out what tastes good. She's being self-sufficient. So all those things are, are important when you're raising kids. Now, of course, can you take it to the extreme and not help them at all and let them crawl on the coffee table and let them go down the hill and scar themselves for lives because they're wearing a swimsuit while they're on their razor scooter? Yeah, that's being a bad parent. But the other extreme is, you know, hey, don't go on the scooter because I don't want you to get hurt. And let me tie your shoes for you and let me make your sandwich for you and let me do all these no, things you can't. for you. Yeah, That's you, just not going to work out good. We actually did the, uh, the sandwich thing. Like the girls were like, we want to make their sandwiches. And I was like, no problem. What do you guys want on there? They, uh, they put sea salt. So they put salt and uh, mustard. I'll take two. Uh, salt and mustard. Was, <laughs> was, was, and I remember and I, like, you gave them the, uh, does this look like a good meal? Like I, I always ask them, like, okay, well, let's take a step back. Like you guys did you know, execution A. Uh, you guys found everything. You put everything away. That's an A. What do you think on uh, on quality of food? Is there uh, is there a, a carb, a protein, a fat in there? And I, we go through this whole like kind of little deal. And I'm like, what do you think about quality of taste? Do you think that's a nutritious deal? They're like, no. I'm like, what are we missing? They're like, we're missing a protein. I'm like, that's right. We would need something animal based to get on there, and then it would be perfect. And they were like, but you don't think that the mustard and salt would taste good? And I'm like, well, let's try it. And they were like, this doesn't taste very good. My other daughter was like, tastes fine to me. I'm like, oh god damn it. <laughs> no, my um the uh the twin daughters thing is like an exercise in in fucking uh, patience and like no I, I tell them at least once a day i'm like you know if i wasn't your father i'd set you guys on fire and then i laugh and they kind of like giggle too and i'm like oh my god these kids are gonna fucking <laughs> kill me but no it's uh it's uh, parenthood is um and I, I told luke the other day he asked me uh you know he's like oh so what do you think about parenthood i'm like the only thing that got me through uh, being a parent is uh people that were less qualified and dumber than me have raised successful children. That's it. I'm like, there's got to be dumber people out there that have raised valedictorians and fucking presidents and whatever. And like, uh, you know, and people turn out. So I'm like, and then every other human being that's ever entered this world has come this way and had yeah. this same experience. So there's some momentum. Yeah. I, I feel like I got a fucking fighting chance on this one. Yeah. The hardest, I think the hardest thing, the, the hardest thing and the biggest difference between, you know, working with any other team, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the corporate world and your family is that, there's, it's much, 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 much harder to detach emotionally from your family and to be like, you know what? It's okay if my kid, you know, if you have an employee that's going down the wrong road and you fire them and get rid of them, it's like, okay, you know, you move on. If that happens in the military, if you've got a, a SEAL that's not performing, hey, it's going to hurt the team. You're going to get rid of them. Sure. You, you actually cannot do that with your kid. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what makes it really, really hard. And, and especially, you know, this is just like taking a, a, a sharp turn into the darkness of the world. But I knew a guy, very wealthy guy, really nice guy, you know, basically unlimited money. And, you know, his son uh, got addicted to heroin and his son died, you know, his son OD'd. And when I talked to his dad about it and he said, you know, I, I, I tried absolutely everything sent him to every rehab, every psychologist, every doctor, did everything he could, spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not millions of dollars to get his kid fixed. The only thing he didn't do was say, you're done, you're cut off. That's the only thing he didn't do. And many people will tell you that's the actual thing you have to do. Right. Yeah, the rock bottom deal. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I, I have a buddy back in uh, – I played for the Eagles, and I have a good friend back in Philadelphia, and uh, he was uh, – uh, you know, fucking 
uh, outlaw biker, just, you know, basically a, you know, bad dude for a long, long time. And uh, he ended up having a son and I met his, his, you know, I've known his little boy for, you know, since he was a you know, toddler and uh, I've been seeing him in a couple of years. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, how's, you know, how's he doing? He's like, oh, kids fucking switched on. And he was like telling me about him. And I was like, so he, he didn't uh, go down your fucking road. And he goes, nah, dude, he goes, I didn't fucking, I didn't shield my child from anything. And I was like, really, what do you mean? He's like, uh, you know, like drugs, alcohol, any of the bad stuff. He goes, parents have this idea that they have to shield their child and hide all the badness and all the fucking evil in the world. He goes, I just explained it to him. Um, you know, he'd say the guy on the street, be like, see that guy? He's a fucking drug addict. He's an alcoholic. How'd you get here? And he'd take him through it. And he goes, you know, our neighbor who was, uh, had a back injury and the guy was a pill head and ended up dying. He's like, you would see him and he's all fucked up. And you ask dad, dad, what's wrong with him? And from a young age, he goes, I never hid the fucking darkness. And, uh, he goes, he goes, you're going to see this as a parent that if you try to like, you know, you, we have this natural instinct to like protect our children from, um, and fucking tell a lie in this. And he's like, don't ever do it. Be fucking honest with them. And he's like, he goes, that honesty will pay dividends. And he goes, I think a reason that a lot of these kids with, you know, uh, with unlimited means end up have running into problems is that their parents have unlimited means and they shield them from all the negative. They shield them from all the bad. They never get a chance to see it at a young age. So then, you know, when they go out and they're faced with these experimentation, they probably only know it from the movies or other bullshit. And they don't see the fucking guy who's, you know, on the street fucking with the needle in his arm. And um, he's like, and he told me, he's like, especially you having daughters, don't shield them from the fucking bad. And uh, he goes, I know it'll be painful, but he said, look at the people that have, you know, uh, been most successful in the world to pull yourself up by your bootstraps The people that didn't grow up with all the privilege end up figuring shit out pretty soon. And they find a way, he goes, it's always the kids that have all the privilege that run into so many of these problems. And I remember that piece of parenting advice was, um, was one, I had a little side project where I was uh, approaching different parents that had successful children. And I kind of asked them, I'm like, you know, what did, uh, what do you think you did good? What do you think you did bad? And after about the seventh person I talked to, I kind of realized that it was pretty true and that every parent that I talked to that was successful, that had successful children said the exact same thing. I was too hard on my kids. And I remember I was talking to one of the guys who was a doctor and his kids are like a lawyer. Another kid, I think is like a appellate court judge. I mean, super, you know, very, very successful. And he kind of teared up and he's like, I was too hard on my kids. It's the one thing I regret. And then I talked to parents that had kids who had been in drugs or in problems and hadn't, you know, had, you know, had a, a myriad of issues. And every one of them said the same thing. I wish I was harder on my kids. And I remember like hearing that, like, and it was, it was almost like verbatim. You hear this story. And I remember, uh, and I tell my kids this, at least, you know, I tell them all the time, daddy loves you, but I will never give up. You'll never win. And I will always fucking be there. And like I did. And like today I, I stopped in at their school, just randomly, just stop in, look in the window, knock and wave, give them the, uh, the fucking, you know, uh, meet the fuckers like this. And, you know, and they tell them all the time. I'm like, I'm never going to give up on you. You'll never win. I will always be there. You're never going to get a with anything, you know? And it's like, I think you have to keep that level of vigilance or, uh, you know, they got to be like, Jesus, my fucking dad might be around the corner. I mean, that's the, uh, uh, you know, I mean, especially with little girls, as you know, you got three daughters. I mean, fuck dude, you can't give an inch and there's fucking weirdos everywhere. So yeah. And you can't always be there, you know, don't care how good you are. Don't care how well, you know, you don't care how much money you got. You can't be there all the time. You can't do it. And so it's a you got to give them the tools. They've got to understand. They got to recognize danger. They got to know that there's evil people in the world and darkness in the world. You absolutely have to teach your kids that. And if you don't, you're just raising a little sheep that's out there for the slaughter. So you've got to be very absolutely. What uh, uh, 
you obviously mentioned jujitsu. At, at what age did you get your your kids into the fight game? Round five. Man, Round five. Yeah, that, our, our, our daughters are right at that point. One of my buddies here has a jujitsu studio, and uh, I've been like, you know, like, um, like I boxed from the time I was pretty young. So like, we've been working on some stuff, but uh, they're right about that age where, uh, you know, I want to start taking them to jujitsu and get them into a little bit of the boxing stuff. I want to teach them a little bit of stand up, a little bit of this. And, uh, the idea is at some point something's going to happen and I want both of them there to rat pack some motherfucker, which yeah. is, you know, which wouldn't be a bad, if I got that phone call and be like something bad happened, you know, this guy did this or whatever. And we fucking snapped his arm. I'll be like, no problem. I can deal with that one a lot better than, you know, you call and tell me you got raped or something bad happened. Yeah. And you know, uh, obviously if you spend any time in the fight game, I mean, a guy versus a girl in 99% of situations is not a fair fight. It's, it's actually crazy. You know, men are just a lot stronger than women in most cases. Um, and what I tell parents or people that give that objection to me, they say, well, you know, what's a girl going to do? You know, the, the reality is, you know, in a, like a self-defense situation, uh, a somebody that knows jujitsu, somebody that knows how to box a little bit, someone that knows a little bit of wrestling, they might be able to prevent that attack for another seven seconds, another 10 seconds, another 12 seconds for somebody to see it, for a cop to hear it, for able to dial the phone, whatever the case may be, those seconds are going to matter. And, you know, it's, it's the, the earlier you start training, the more comfortable you are with it. I mean, a lot of times with girls, the, if they're getting attacked by someone, they've never even been grabbed before. They've never had somebody on them before. Well, you do jujitsu, that's no problem. So girls will just lock up because somebody's on them. Somebody's grabbing them. They, they don't, they automatically, they panic, they freeze up. You do jujitsu every day, that's just another, you're, you're used to this. You don't have to overcome that barrier, which is a huge barrier. It's a huge barrier of just um, overreaction and adrenaline dump and all those bad things happen physiologically. They don't know how to control them and boom something bad is going much, much worse. Whereas if they're used to that, happens to them all the time, they're training all the time, boom, they go, hey, get off me, what are you doing? And they're doing something aggressive back and we have a much, much better outcome. And most of those, most of those uh, you know, sick people, they're out looking for a victim. They're looking for someone that's weak. They're looking for someone that's not gonna fight back. And they can identify early on that this that they got someone that's not going to be a victim that's someone that's going to fight back and give them problems so well it's like uh, uh my brother is uh and both my dad and my brother are defense attorneys and i remember um uh, my brother was talking about you know robberies and when he was a da and he's like honestly the only homes that don't get robbed are ones with uh with dogs even small dogs and he's like because some you know if a dog barks somebody might come it's easier to go to another one i mean it's like uh uh, you know, I mean, think about how many attacks and people are looking for victims. And if you are, don't hold yourself as a victim, all of a sudden you put yourself in a better situation or, you know, think about how many people and actually this, I can't remember what this conversation we had, but, uh, uh, it was the idea that if more people had actually been punched in the face, we think that they would probably do better. Cause I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, I've obviously been hit in the face. I'm sure you have too. It doesn't phase me in the same way, but if you watch somebody that's never been hit and, uh, I have a buddy who was, uh, who's the, this is Jaybird, who's the fight coordinator and one of the strength guys for flexi down in, uh, Atlanta. And one of the first days they come in there with all the federal law enforcement training guys to go in, they basically make them fight Jaybird and Jaybird's probably six, three, 260 pound, you know 700 pound deadlift uh redneck and he gets in there and you know he go and you know fight randy couture and you know go to different fight camps and is fucking good fighter and they got to get in there and and put on you know the tony blower spear gear and you know go i think it's like 60 seconds with jaybird and he goes in there and just beats on these people and he and the best part is he's like you realize that most of these guys have never been in a physical confrontation and never been in anything that's gone that long and you know and 
to see how people freeze up and act and run under stress is uh is pretty interesting and his stories about it are great yeah and and case in point you know 60 seconds for someone that trains and knows how to fight is actually nothing and for Jay Bird, he does it with 10 15 20 people so he's in there for half an hour doing this i guarantee every one of those guys that hasn't fought they come out of that 60 seconds they feel like they're gonna die because oh, they're they talk about it they're uh, they, they were like, dude, uh, day one, you got to fight Jaybird. It's like this fucking mythical thing. And, uh, I always laugh and I mean, he's a strong fucking dude and he's pretty tough and he goes up there, you know, sit like four ounce gloves and they got all this yeah. shit gets out there and beats he's, on him. He's not geared up. And his one rule yep. is just don't punch me in the face or it's, it's going to turn into or more than 60 awesome. seconds. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, I actually took a text when we were in, um, Joe, uh, Savannah, we drove out to Jaybird's farm and, uh, he's lived on the, his family's lived on the same land for over 200 years. So they like, uh, you know, slaves work their land. I mean, so we went out and saw it and it was some serious shit. He's like, oh yeah, you guys want to see where they used to, you know, make the cane sugar and I'll take you to slave quarters where they, I mean, it's fucking serious. But uh, yeah, I mean, you live out in that part of the world, man, that's some serious shit. And you guys, why did you not have Tex fight Jaybird? That seems like a proper initiation for any employee. <sighs> Jesus. I, um, I don't think I do that to poor Tex. <laughs> Jaybird's a fucking savage. I understand, dude. But he so you get beat he, up. Who cares? He literally his gym is in a fucking horse barn that that had been there since the 1800s, and they had the stalls all set up because he always talked about the barn. Mm -hmm. And he took us in there, and I'm like, oh, he's like, oh my my great 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 grandpappy built this barn in like 1821, and this is where they fucking train. And they had basically been deadlifting uh, wagon wheels and like train fucking implements, and had all this crazy field work. And, and on the the other half of the gym is where he raises raises pit bulls. So yeah. when you're deadlifting, you're just staring a pit bull right in the face and he's growling at you. It's motivation. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then also he showed us where he makes a rhubarb wine and, uh, their moonshine. So I've made Tex drink a little moonshine and I don't think Tex was right ever again. So now it's good. It's delicious. So Jocko, what do you do for your training now? Uh, I, man, I do do all the same stuff I've always done. You know, I, uh, Lift weights every day, do calisthenics. I, I train jujitsu every day. I run, I sprint, I throw stuff. Um, yeah, you know, I just get after it. Do you, do you, do you think that, uh, um, and this is kind of an interesting thought too, is, uh, and I'm sure you, I don't know, maybe agree or disagree, but um, with kids and especially most people, they kind of, you know, learn from example. And I'm sure being in the military with the SEAL teams, I mean, you guys have a situation where, you know, hey, the, the officers are actually leading the guys from the front. And um, at least I've known this with, with parents, you know, yelling at their kids here and they don't see, you know, and, but the parents don't necessarily work out or train or really can't do these things. And yet they want, you know, their kids to do it so much. So, I mean, I've realized this and I remember, uh, you know, I, I take my daughters to gymnastics and this guy was like, oh, you know, started asking me about training and it was something he wanted to do. And he's like, yeah, I don't think it's really that important. And I'm like, let me tell you, dude, your kids are going to get to the point where, you know, you're going to take them to these things. You're going to be asking them to do things. And if they don't think that you do it too, they're not going to fucking buy into any of this bullshit. Yeah, and totally agree. Uh, you, you definitely, it definitely sets a good example. Now, that being said, I mean, I see parents that, I think the other side of that is you see parents that are just forcing their kids to do something because they can't. And so they're just making them do it and they're going to drive their kids crazy. You know, their kids going to end up, you know, I think there's actually a percentage of those kids that get driven super hard by their parents that do, that do, that are, are successful. I mean, you can look at, I guess the Williams sisters, right? They were driven super hard. You can look at Tiger Woods. He was driven super hard. 
Uh, so there's examples, obviously, of people that are successful after they've been driven super hard, but you don't see the this the the, the, the fucking broken eggs. <laughs> yeah, you don't see the bodies on the battlefield from those those parents as well that end up you know hating whatever sport it was that they, that their parents tried. To play. I mean, look at the Todd Marinovich. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Marv Marinovich, who's a fucking world class trainer, and BJ Penn, and all this other stuff, and yeah. shit, man. I mean, so I how do you chalk that up? Do you chalk that up as a win or a loss? To Marv or to him? Both of them. Uh, I think. Um, I think the hard thing, and uh, let me see how I put this. Uh, as a parent, I think you, you know, you obviously have dreams like for your children. I mean, I, I know I do. I have, I have like, you know, not necessarily dreams. I just want, you know, I want them to be healthy. I want them to be, uh, you know, happy. I want them to be smart. I want them to do well to the point where, uh, you know, they're able to be successful, but I don't want it to be easy for them. Because I realize that, um, you know, for the things that are too easy, people just take them for granted and they don't learn to work. So, like, if the kids struggle with things, I kind of am a little excited. My wife's like, oh, you know, um, you know, they need to work hard. I'm like, it's perfect. Uh, it's the people where everything is so easy. And it's just like, I, and I think for a guy like, uh, you know, Todd Marinovich, uh, you know, his dad was, you know, world-class trainer, pushed him to do all these things and everything was so easy and he was so gifted that, uh, you know, even though he had to work, it just, uh, you know, I don't know if there was much adversity. There was never a point where, uh, you know, he sucked at something and had to work and had to find a way to persevere in the face of things. And I think he, you know, uh, everything was real easy for him. He was super gifted. He had all the right training, all the right bullshit. And his dad was a crazy person and, you know, now he's a heroin addict, but the the story that was universal to most of the people and and you you know i'm sure it's the the same thing for the seal teams without that beginning bit of adversity where like you know somebody i'm sure you've you know had one or two times in your life tell you you know you suck you shouldn't be here you should quit i mean and how many times did you hear that in, in buds training i'm sure probably 100 times a day and without that kind of like ability to persevere in the face of shit then i don't think you ever really ever learned and the kids that i've that i can think of through my life and, you know, uh, you know, played football, did everything where everything was just so easy and so given ended up never really developing the skill set because dude, shit's not going to be easy forever. And I think it's easier to develop that skill set for perseverance and hard work and how to figure out how to problem solve and work this at a younger age than it is to have, Hey, I'm the best athlete all of a sudden through high school. And then all of a sudden I get to my senior year and everybody's better than me, but I never developed a skill set to try to get better. Yeah. And I think that to me is, um, adversity at not a young age. I think is uh, one of the biggest downfalls in terms of when I see athletic development and people that have really kind of, you know, blossomed on to be, you know, good. Like Luke was all world high school football player. 2001 DVC state champion, Mano and Daniels. And I uh, vicariously won the Super Bowl last year through Owen as well. Thank you. <laughs> so similar deal, you know, Luke's all world, but then all of a sudden, you know, he gets into a situation where he fucks his neck up and, you know, can't hit anymore and then, yeah. and then you got to figure something else so you became a book nerd yeah exactly math and computer science just fucking <laughs> the way to pussy man that's how i picked up all the chicks you want to see my algorithms <laughs> but i mean like that was the weird thing for me uh, uh you know because i was never the best i was never the most gifted but like i just wanted it more than other people so i was willing to put in the work and you know all of a sudden by the time everything caught up. I was successful at what I needed, but I can't imagine without building that fucking skill set behind me, if it would have been successful. So I think as a parent, I'm constantly trying to figure out how I stack the deck against the kids because uh, my daughters are actually really gifted, like really good athletes are really graceful. They move really well. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to stack the deck against them. 
and uh it's it's become this like in, you know fucking constant thing of trying to figure out how to stack it and uh we'll see hopefully it works out and they don't fucking grow up hating me Jack, yeah. going back going back to a lot of the stuff we're talking about are like uh, trained abilities right and one of the big things when we're talking in our world is progression misappropriation of certain training stimulus let's say for nerds out there listening to like strength and conditioning can kind of stymie things and fuck things up so when you're talking about uh exposing these new leadership attributes to leaders and this is one thing andy said he at, at our power athlete symposium this last year one of the things that stuck with me is you have to practice being a leader you know if you're you have to practice it takes reps just like a bench press just like a back squat uh, for a lot of the principles you talk about in the book, is there any progression that you, you know, that you, you employ on, on individuals other than just like, Hey, here's principles, run with it, figure it out yourself. Or, or is it just kind of a, it takes time. It takes reps, you know? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, when I, when I was running the West coast seal training, it was like a leadership laboratory that I had was the master of and I had total control over. And so we would absolutely train guys and we would escalate scenarios starting off, you know, you go out, we'd send them on a little training mission and everything would go pretty smooth and they just have to kind of run it. And then we'd send them out on the next one and it would be a little hiccup in there and there'd be a little problem to solve. And then we'd send them out on another one and we'd give them a little bit more of a problem. And if they, if they didn't manage it right, we bring them back, we say, okay, what happened? You didn't have your guys in the right position. They didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. You didn't have decentralized command. You, you, here's the mistakes that you made. Let's try it again. We give them the, a similar problem. And then we continue to do that until we've got these problems that are we're throwing total chaos and mayhem at these guys. And when, they're, when they've gone through the proper escalation and they've figured out how to detach from the scenario and, and get back from the problem and make sure they don't get too involved in it and use their subordinate leadership properly and keep things simple and they learn how to do all these things. We throw, we could throw everything, you know, every problem in the world at them and they, they'd handle it. So yeah, that's how we do it. We'd start off with smaller problems and then escalate until they could handle whatever we threw at them. So do you, do you give the guys like, um, uh, like a set, I almost think of like a, like a blueprint almost like here are the tools of which you work and these tools can universally apply to all problems. So, I mean, if you, you know, and I, the example, whenever you, you know, you talk about any of this stuff, I just picture like, uh, you know, uh, being at, uh, you know, Mid-South and basically seeing the guys go through the house and then, you know, watching, uh, you know, those guys problem solve as they put different obstacles, being able to go through the kill house. And I think for me, at least, that was one of the most interesting ones, basically letting them run through with like no obstacles and then providing different barriers and then watching it break down. And then, you know, the guys coming down and basically problem solving for them and then teaching them and then, you know, kind of having a, a you know, a dialogue. And for me, that was uh, one of the, the more fun and more interesting things that I got to observe was, kind of that situation so i mean is that kind of what you're talking about it's very similar and if you if you spend some time out there then you'd see the first runs that they do would be pretty yep. easy they, they, they would literally have sometimes there'd be nothing in the house like literally not one single target not one single bad guy or or hostage or anything they just go through and do the movement and then from there all of a sudden we put a, a, a one bad guy so okay now we're gonna go in and kill the one bad guy and then we put two bad guys and we put a hostage in there and then we start putting bad guys that are gonna move and shoot back and then we start changing the rooms around and then we start putting down men and then we start taking out the leaders and then we start screwing up their communication plans so yeah that's exactly what you saw and i don't know how much of you saw of it but that's yeah. that's what we do and each time you know, you can look at the leader and you can say, listen, you were so far forward in the train that you entered this room and now you were dealing with this unknown person. You're wrestling around on the ground. Well, who is leading the rest of the platoon? No one. 
So lesson learned, don't get so far forward in the train that you're the, the guy that's entering the rooms, holding the trigger and wrestling with people, you need to be leading. And they go, oh, okay, got it. Now next time they come to a doorway and instead of entering the doorway, they take a step to the side, they send some guys in there and now they can still do their leadership. So that's the kind of thing that, yes, you teach, you learn, you practice, you do your reps, and you get to a point where you can handle anything that they throw at you. So what's the analog for the, uh, the CEO? We do. Well, actually, what's, what's interesting is very fun with, with the corporate world. is paintball? What's that? Is it paintball? Sims? Well, we do that. We do, do that with, uh, we use, actually, I prefer to use Airsoft. Okay. I don't know if you've ever used Airsoft, but it's, it, it hurts a little less, so it's not quite as big of a deal, and you can have unlimited rounds. The, the guns work great. But to go to more of just a straight corporate scenario, I will do role-playing with people. I'll say, okay, I'm your employee that doesn't want to new, use your new method. And by the way, here's my characteristics. I've been here at this company for longer than you. I'm really experienced. I have a good reputation. But I've been using my method, method A, for the last 20 years. And you want me to come. You, now you've got to come in and try and get me to try method B. Go for it. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start off by saying, ah, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea. But I'll break, I'll, I'll break pretty easily for him and go, okay, yeah, you know what? If you want me to do it, I'll do it. But then we'll escalate it. And pretty soon I'll be saying, hey, look, not only is my plan better, your plan actually sucks. Talk to me. You know, so then we go through these whole scenarios where people learn to do the same principles that you use in a combat situation. In a combat situation, you've got to detach from getting emotional and getting involved with what's happening. Same thing when you're having a conversation with an employee that's starting to get aggravated with you. You can't enter into that emotional cycle with them or you're going you're gonna to say stupid stuff and make bad decisions. Instead, you've got to detach, take a step back readdress the situation maybe we have to flank them you know if you got a guy if you're telling me that my method sucks then that's hurting my ego right that's my method screw you what are you talking about i've been doing this for longer than you we're not going to get anywhere so what i have to do is say hey you know what you actually have a really good method i want to look at it. i'm going to study i'm going to take some of the things that you're doing i kind of want to spread it around there's also a couple things i've seen some other people doing that I don't know, maybe I could get your opinion on those too. And now I've broken through that ego. I've got the guy listening to me. And now we're going to have a conversation to move forward. Whereas if I just come in and say, you suck, ego's up, totally defensive. Anything that you tell me to do, I'm going to actually, not only am I not going to try to do my best at it, I'm actually going to open Yeah, I'm going to sabotage. So yep. those are the kind of things we do in the corporate world. But it's all the same, it's all the same principles. It's all leadership. My brother made a good comment once. He said, uh, ego has killed more people than fucking cancer. <laughs> and I was like, uh, and my brother's a defense attorney. And he's like, dude, you wouldn't believe uh, how many clients I have that fuck themselves uh, because of ego. And, yeah. you know, put them in a situation where all of a sudden, you know, they can't detach. And he's like, if you can fucking remove your ego from a lot of things, he's like, you will, you know, and it, it was just kind of an interesting thing. He's like, uh, he'll call me all the time and be like, dude, this fucking dipshit pays me to do X and the guy can't take his ego or listen long enough to just shut his fucking mouth to let me get him out of this problem. And he's like, dude, he's like, it's taken down more people than cancer. And um, I always think like in these situations, you know, people get to a point and it's, uh, you know, I always think like, you know, you gotta have a lot of pride in who you are, but you know, not so much ego that you can't learn or you can't necessarily be flexible enough. And we run into that all the time where people are so inflexible and, uh, you know, I mean, geez, even at our seminars, people pay us fucking exorbitant amount of fun, uh, money to come hang out with us and, you know, learn and, you know, take the seminar for a weekend and then want to do nothing but fight us on every ounce of what we're doing. And I'm like, dude, you paid to be here. They paid like, for your affirmation, no, John. Well, that's all they paid for. They want you to pat but, them on the back and say everything but you're doing is the great. Thing, you don't learn anything being a full cup. 
Like I always think like empty yeah. your cup, have an empty cup, come into every situation as if like I'm, I'm here to learn something. So if my cup is empty, I can bring in information. If I come in with a full cup and all these preconceived notions and I'm just looking for you to rubber stamp everything, then, uh, you know, nothing gets accomplished enough effectively can't, you know, do what I want to do, which is, you know, fill your cup with whatever the knowledge you're obviously paying for. So I'm sure you go into a lot of situations with CEOs. Oh, I want you to come here. And what they really want you to do is come in and rubber stamp their methods. Yeah. And, and in actuality, you're like, no, I'm trying to teach you a better set of skills and more importantly, just a better set of tools to effectively lead your people. And if your cup is full, bro, I can't help it. So dump that shit out and let's get to work. Yeah, that's the only kind of people I always ask, you know, if there's anybody that can't become a good leader. And the person that can't become a good leader is the person that's ego is so big that they can't listen to anybody else. They, they're, they're not going to be a good leader. It's not going to happen. So. So, then, so then how do you uh, deal with the SEAL teams? I mean, obviously, lots of egos, lots of pop collars, you know, lots of, you know, Charlie Sheen. In, uh, I'll tell you, so we, we would fire, when I was running the West Coast SEAL training, we would fire between one and three leaders per cycle. Uh, from each SEAL team, and all those leaders would be getting fired because their their ego, they couldn't listen to anybody else, they weren't humble, and they'd get fired. So we'd fire them. And then and when they get fired, what uh, that basically kicks them out of their role, and they got to go do something else. Or yeah, I mean, depending on how you know, if you get a guy that gets fired and says, "Oh God, I can't believe this. I was so such an idiot. I wasn't listening. I'm sorry." I, I realize the, the mistakes, my ways, he might get another shot at it. But if he says, yeah, this is ridiculous. I got fired. I shouldn't have gotten fired. You're like, cool. Get out of the Navy. Go do something else. Because when, you know, when you got somebody that has a big ego, they're not going to listen to anybody else. And they're not going to listen to anybody else. They're not going to respect their enemy. They're not going to self-correct. They're not going to take on a new methodology. They're just, they're just done. They're done. They can't, they can't be in those positions anymore. They got to continue to learn and continue to evolve. So in the book, you, you break out into kind of three parts. So winning the war within, the laws of combat, and sustaining victory. So my question is, are the principles, how you would go into a CEO or approach the SEALs in, t in learning these, are they introduced in order? Yeah. Or, um, okay. They so, are in order. And they're, they're, also, they're also introduced in order, but they're all kind of relying on each other. It's, it's, you can't really have one of the principles and well if you have one of the principles like when i'm when i'm explaining a principle to somebody or they're they're having issues with it at a company i'll say oh okay um you know you're not you're not using decentralized command and that means that you know your subordinate leadership isn't stepping out and leading well part of that is maybe you're trying to use decentralized command but your message and your communication and your plan isn't simple enough so you have to focus on your simplicity and your decentralized command. And also, by the way, you're telling them to do 12 different things at the same time. So guess what? You need to prioritize and execute. So they all, they all you, you'll, you'll get some overlap on all of them, and that's why you need to kind of hear, hear them all before we start addressing the specifics of each individual one. Do you think that's what's missed most, Jocko, is kind of the, uh, the symphony of execution? Or do you th are there certain principles that are misapplied or misunderstood do you find uh or is it, is it situational it's it's somewhat situational and it's just like people you know some people are good you know even if you take the physicality of a human being some people are flexible but they're not strong some people are quick but they're not dynamic i mean you can you can everybody's got little things that they're good and bad at and it'll be the same thing with individuals from a leadership perspective and it'll be the same thing from companies from a 
leadership perspective. So you might have a company that's got really decentralized command, but in fact, the command is so decentralized that no one on the front line knows what the hell they're supposed to be doing. So they're just out there kind of plotting their own course. And, and that's problematic. Or you might get a, a, a company that has such centralized command that no one on the front lines can make any decisions on their own. And they're all just waiting to be told what to do, which is also a bad situation. So it just depends. Everybody's a little bit different. Each company's a little bit different. And that's what we, you know, that's what we do is we go in and we find out where those issues are and where that friction is and how we can get it smoothed out. And then is it, um, I mean, I guess going back to progression on timeline, is, is there like a scorecard that you do an evaluation and then determine kind of a plan of attack from that perspective? Yeah, we go out and we, we go out and we do an assessment of the company. We'll go out, we'll meet with everyone. Well, not everyone, but we'll meet with a bunch of different levels of the chain of command from the C-suite all the way down to some of the frontline people so that we understand and we know what what's really going on. And then we, we come back. We, we usually spend two or three days doing that. And we come back and we kind of come up with a game plan and where we need to focus and we go back and execute. And then is it like, a, are there waypoints along, along the path where you come in and check and yep. engage progress? Yep. And, you know, every company is different. You know, sure. I mean, you companies that have thousands of people that are located in one location. You've got companies that have tens of thousands of people that are located all over the world. So we've traveled a bunch. You know, you get to those outstations in foreign countries and you got to give them the same information, you know, from the horse's mouth kind of in a lot of, in a lot of cases. But yeah, we, we go out and we get the message through. Oh, that's, it sounds a lot like the shit we do on a, a micro scale or macro scale with teams and athletes, right? Yeah. Establish a baseline, progress, stress to progress. Well, and, and, but, uh, I, focus yeah. on the principles. I mean, <sighs> execute. Yeah, I mean, the baseline thing is so, uh, is so interesting because you have to go in and actually get people to take stock in where they are presently. And I think that's another one is, um, you know, perception uh, and where people like their perception of necessarily where they are versus where reality. they really are. Yeah. Perception of reality. And, uh, and I'm sure you've run into this too, Jocko, where uh, people don't live in fucking reality. I mean, so, they're telling so you something. You're like, this isn't what I'm seeing. Like, here's, here's something I used to ask the, the young SEAL officers. I would say, what's the most important piece of information on the battlefield? And they would say, uh, where the enemy is. And they'd say, how far away the enemy is, how many of the enemy there is. And they would give all these answers. And I'd say, no, you're all wrong. The most important piece of information on the battlefield is to know where you are. And truly, if you don't know where you are, if you don't specifically know where you are on the battlefield, if you can't point to where you are on a map, you can't attack the enemy because you don't know where you are. You can't call for fire. You can't get support. You can't coordinate any other efforts. You're lost is where you are. So that's exactly what you just said, John, is when you meet someone and they, they, they don't know where they are, and you say, you know, how are you doing here? And they just don't know. Or they think, even worse, is they think they know where they are. So, yeah, those are, uh, that's, a, that's a bad starting point. So, yes, the first thing you've got to have is you got to know where you are on the battlefield. Well, yeah, and then the, uh, you know, and then obviously have – enough wear all and hopefully their ego isn't so big that they can't take a you know like well let's help you you know let's try to figure out like let's you, you and i sit down and figure out where your north is yeah let's zero let's, in yeah let's zero in on this and then they like fucking look at you like they want to like fucking cry or throw up and i'm like dude it's fine everybody starts at the same place like like i it's um yeah no i mean i i can only imagine in your situation i mean we've done it in, for so many years that it's uh, uh you know and 
unfortunately people get butthurt really fast. I mean, to the point where like, you almost have to like, you can see it happening and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm not trying to like insult you. I'm not trying to fucking, you know, take you down or any of this other stuff, dude. This is just, we have to find a starting point for which we can build upon. And um, if you can't necessarily uh, accurately start at that point or really kind of, you know, take a bit of realism, then dude, you're going to live in fantasy land and candy land's fucking next door. Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be extremely difficult. I, I would say that might even be more difficult in your situation because you're dealing with kind of black and white. Like this is where you are with a company. I can I can massage a CEO enough and say, hey, you know, we're doing good here. I like that. You know, maybe we can improve a little bit here. You know, mm -hmm. and, and when the reality is, they really need to improve there. Um, but you're kind of looking at you know actual location and numbers and saying look this is where you're at dude <laughs> <laughs> well i mean like uh, uh one of our guys uh just hit me up and he um he's a pitcher for the rays and he just got released and he's like what do i do and i'm like you need to fucking throw the ball harder i mean you know like what do you want like and he's like well how, how fast do you know i'm throwing it i'm like obviously not fast enough for them to fucking cut you Mm -hmm. like and and he like this is kind of like as he got kind of quiet and I'm, I'm like you know he's like well I, I felt like I'm playing I'm like I didn't give a shit if you if you think you were playing well I mean you might have been playing the best of anybody but the fact that they released you meant that they felt that somebody else was better or you weren't part of the team or there was you know for some other reason and I'm like dude you can tell me all the reasons but I don't give a shit you're yeah. either there or you're not and it's like uh, you know and you know and then it's like okay what's the game plan well that what's next and that right there is the title of the book that I wrote is Extreme Ownership. And the reason that's the title of the book is because when you get a pitcher or a human being or a SEAL or a leader and, they're, and things don't work and they get cut from the team or they fail at their mission, and the first thing they do is say, well, I think I was playing pretty well and I think I was throwing the ball pretty well and I think I was doing a good job tactically, they're not facing the fact and they're not owning the problems. And if you don't own the problems, you're not going to solve the problems. So that's the first – a hundred percent. Step one, you got to own it. You got to own the problems. And if you don't, if you want to blame the coaching staff and you want to blame your subordinate leaders, and you want to blame the market. He didn't like me. That was my yeah. other favorite. They cut me and, uh, and dude, I've, I've heard that for years. And I, I told people, um, I'm like, dude, I played for coaches that I hated and I knew they hated me, but they still started me and paid me because I was the better player. I'm yeah. like, at the end of the day, those guys want to win games and they'll play the best player regardless. Yeah, you got to outperform that deficiency, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like this whole, like, they, you know, and I, we run those, like, well, my coach didn't like me. I'm like, well, let me tell you, dude, I played for plenty of guys and everybody likes good players. Like, you might be a fucking shitbird, you might be a fucking scumbag or whatever those things, but at the end of the day, if you can play, they like you. You know why? Because you help them win games. At the end yeah. of the day, like, yeah. wins and losses is how these guys keep their fucking job. So, like, personal shit, hopefully. Uh, and I can't say that, you know, unilaterally, because I'm sure you've also run into guys that, you know, will fucking cut off their nose to spite their face. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you just hope that people aren't like that. I mean, at least, uh, you know, I fucking hope I don't run into people like that either. Yeah, but that is the beginning of any of, of moving. The beginning of forward progress is knowing where you are and owning the problems that you're having, because that's without that, you're not going anywhere. Well, I guess there's two reasons you wouldn't know where you're at. One is, uh, I guess, truly not knowing. You just don't know. And the second, I guess, would be that ego side of things, right? Yeah. So, so when you go and work with these companies, and maybe it's on the private level versus a, a seminar, do you, have a, do you screen out and weed out potential clients based on like, hey, these guys can't be saved. The ego's fucking built the brick wall that we can't bust through. No, his ego's so big that they can fix anybody. <laughs> okay. No, I'm kidding. That was a joke. 
but uh see you dude i gotta see see the little tiny smirk like yeah fuck you smart ass yeah yeah i got this i i got a story that i kind of tell on a, on a fairly regular basis um and i went into this company if you guys hear me right there's a little noise right now um went to this company worked with this company and the guy that was running the company uh ceo he's pretty young and actually played football and um in college was a legit athlete went to an ivy league uh uh, postgraduate school scenario, big dude, kind of a hoss, and the company's worth a ton of money. And he was an owner, not just the CEO, he's one of the owners of the company, so he had a ton of money too. And so when I meet this guy, you know, we're kind of, you know, I'm, I meet the CFO and I meet the COO, and everyone's cool, nice to meet you. And I meet this guy, and he's kind of like, you know, what? You know, he's kind of like bowing up to me. This is a supplement company? What's that? Was this a supplement company? No, it wasn't. But okay. the funny thing is, so what did I do? I was like, what? Oh, you think you're a badass, right? Huh? And so we started, we started having this, you know, this kind of like conflict. And I, I just thought to myself, okay, this will, this guy will probably settle down. He's just, you know, kind of whatever. And then we go back, you know, we spend the day with him. The next day, show up in the morning again, shake everyone's hand. I see him and he, you know, meet him. And he's kind of like, what? You know? And so we're doing this thing, just kind of bowing up to each other. And so we spend our two days with them and then we go away. And then I just, I kind of don't think, because I, I pretty much can get along with anybody. And so then we go back a couple weeks later to, to go work with the company and, you know, meet the, meet the CFO again and meet the COO, cool guys, all good. Meet the CEO and I'm like, what's up, dude? What? And um, I'm sitting there, I'm going, what is this guy's problem, you know? And then we're, we're kind of like sitting in a meeting and I'm thinking to myself, why is it hard for me to get along with this guy? And then I, as I'm sitting there, I was like, oh, oh, idiot. I'm an idiot. Because clearly what was going on was this dude was a total physical stud. He was like huge, big, smart, and rich, right? And I'm thinking, oh, Jocko, you're jealous of this dude. And I was like, cool. So... I go up to him during the break and I'm like, Hey man, I want to, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? He's like, he's like, yeah, what? You know, he kind of gives, and I go, yeah, man, I just want to tell you that bro, I, I have nothing but respect for what you're doing. This is awesome. Like you're a stud athlete, you're wicked smart and you built this company, you got all this money. I, I think you're a total badass. And he was like, no way, man. You're a badass. You're a big steal. And you're the- <laughs> all I had to do was just kind of get through that ego thing of my own. And then when I kind of disarmed him a little bit, he got through it and we, we became bros. But, you know, the ego thing is, is it's a real thing. It's huge. The, the hardest ego always to deal with is your own ego. A lot of times, you know, anytime I start feeling any kind of frustration or, or anger about something, I immediately check my ego because that's probably the issue. It's probably me just thinking, oh, I wish I could, you know, what, who does that guy think he is? You know, it's just, just me being, uh, being insecure. This speaks to kind of the dichotomy of leadership that you wrap the book up with. So you're able to play both sides, the top and down. Is there yeah. a way we, we can uh, kind of get into that? And then your discovery of this, did you, did you write this before uh, you kind of, uh, before you wrote the book, was this a part of your development as a SEAL? Yeah, absolutely. Dichotomy of leadership is a huge thing. And, and it's something, you know, you're just going to have these opposing forces that are pulling you in two different directions when you're a leader and both the directions that you're getting pulled are correct. Both of them are correct. So, you know, do you want to be confident? Yeah, of course you want to be confident, but that one side is confidence. The other side is you're too cocky. 
right? Do you want to be courageous? Of course you want to be courageous. But at the same time, you can't be uh, foolhardy with the decisions that you're making. I mean, you got you to think about what you're doing. Do you, do you want to be competitive? Yes, of course, as a leader, you want to be competitive. You want your team to compete hard. But you need to be a gracious loser if you lose. You can't be a bad sport. you got to be, you know, attentive to the details. But you can't be obsessed with details. Otherwise, you won't be able to get anything done. you got to be strong. Of course, you got to be strong. But you got to have endurance, too. If your strength lasts, you know, 14 seconds, you got to have some endurance or else you're not going to be able to go the distance. You got to be aggressive, but you can't be overbearing. So that's it. That's the dichotomy of leadership. It's in just about every aspect of leadership and and life as well. You know, we just talked about it with kids, right? You you got to take care of your kids. You got to make sure that they don't get injured, but at the same time, you can't coddle them. So you got to find that balance and everything. And that's you're going to be constantly walking the line. And sometimes your kids are going to get skin knees, and you're going to be like, well, okay, getting close, and then they're going to break a leg, and you're going to say, um, oh, oops, went a little too far. So go on, let's, I, I kind of want to dive into the, the book that you showed us before the show now, because we're, we're on that, talking about kids a little bit and, and uh, I guess pulling the right levers at the right time. Uh, are, are you cool to talk a little bit about it? Give a little preview? Yeah, yeah about the new book. Yeah, I uh, got a new book coming out and it's right here. Are you guys, is this on YouTube or no? A novel way we'll, of the uh, No, it's, it'll be audio, but we'll put a little link in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, book is called The Way of the Warrior Kid. And it's, you know, actually John and I were talking about this before reading kids books. When I was reading my kids books when they were younger, you, you want to read your kid a book that, you know, taught them about the same kind of overall principles that, that you live your life by. And you get these books and so many of them, it was just encouraging mental weakness, to be honest with you, just mental weakness. And, um, I just got tired of reading books like that for my kid and eventually wrote this book right here. And basically the book is about a kid that is, he can't do any pull-ups. So he's getting made fun of in the gym class when they when it comes time to do pull-ups, he can't do any pull-ups. He doesn't know his times tables. So he's not passing the math test he's supposed to pass. He doesn't know how to swim. So when they go on their field trip in the spring and in the, and in the fall, he doesn't, he can't do the activities because the kids are all playing in the lake and he doesn't know how to swim. And then finally he's getting bullied by this big thug named Kenny Williamson. And so the, the story starts off the first day of school and he's, all these things are kind of coming to a head. They have like a pull-up competition. He's getting laughed at. He fails the math test. He can't do any, and finally he's getting pushed around and he's all bummed out. He's crying. When he gets home, his mom is saying, hey, what's wrong? You know, he says, oh, I'm just going to miss my friends because he can't tell his mom anything because his mom doesn't really get it. And then he remembers, his mom reminds him that his uncle, his uncle Jake, is coming to stay with him for the summer. And his uncle Jake is a SEAL that is getting out of the SEAL teams. He's going to go to college. But for the summer, he's going to stay with this kid named Mark. So uncle comes out, meets Mark. You know, they start hanging out a little bit. And he says, hey, you, know, you want to go swimming? You want to go for play, play basketball or something? And the kid just breaks down and, you know, I can't swim. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do anything. I can't do any pull-ups. I'm weak. I don't even know my times table. I'm getting picked on. And the uncle says, you know what? These are not problems. We can, we can handle all these things. So they do a little training over the summer. And when a kid goes back to school, after training jiu-jitsu, doing a bunch of pull-ups and push-ups and dips and squats, 
he's ready to rock and roll when he gets back to school and he gets after it. So that's the story. Solid because I mean, you got Flexi Lexi over here. John's reading Flexi Lexi uh, and teaching. It's <laughs> no, no, dude. I like so I know exactly what he's saying because, um, like, if you read these books, you think to yeah, yourself, Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, I haven't read a kid's uh, book in fucking. Don't ever. worry, dude. I got fucking boxes of this shit for you when you have kids. I'll just fucking give them to you. Yeah, 12 daughters is my point. Is that, that's a game yeah. plan. I keep telling Luke, I hope he has triplet <laughs> daughters. So I'm like, go fuck yourself. It's the, easy. The, um, but, like, if, if you read these books, it's, uh, they're so fucking emo. It's like, I know where millennials come from having read these books. Like, uh, uh, my daughters asked me, they were like, um, cause my, their net or my nephew, uh, gave them the Harry Potter books. And mm-hmm. so I was reading them and I, I read the Harry Potter books years ago and now I'm reading them with a different lens. And it's like this, you know, poor kid and he's in, you know, stuck underneath the stairs, but yet a magical owl shows up and brings him a secret special invite to go to a, a wizard school. And like, I'm reading this shit and I'm like, I know why these fucking kids are so emo. Like everything, like all these books are, you know, like uh, this just weird, like, like not one of these uh, children's situations that I've read is about like what Jocko's saying, his book where like the, you know, the kid comes in. Cause I mean, this is kind of real life. He comes into a situation where he can't do stuff. And I'll tell you what personally hit me is I couldn't do pull-ups sixth grade and I failed the presidential physical fitness test. And I was so fucking now, humiliated. I don't, I don't want to start a conspiracy, but since I've known you, you've had this quote unquote shoulder issue and I still haven't seen you do pull-ups. Are you fucking kidding me? What? You want to go right now? Dude. Uh, <laughs> every second counts. I was in the CrossFit fucking documentary. Oh, here pull-ups. we go. Back to the games. Largest athlete, 2007. Yeah, it was the greatest <laughs> accomplishment of my life. After playing 10 years in the NFL, competing in the CrossFit games was the fucking uh, the pinnacle of my life. It's me fucking shooting myself. Uh, no, but like Sorry, I, I, I couldn't do fucking pull-ups. And I remember being failed on the physical fitness test. And uh, that's when they were like, well, can you do the flexed arm hang? Where like you basically hold up and you do the isometric hold at the top. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the flex arm hang. <laughs> and I didn't get it. So I, I uh, every day I would go out and like, you know, after fucking PE, I would stare at that fucking pull-up bar and I'd fucking jimmy my way up there and hold at the front and uh, basically just try to do accentuated negatives. Unbeknownst to you though, right? Unbeknownst yeah. to me. Just doing controlled negatives, just, 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 building your efficiency. Well, it was really that uh, I couldn't hold my fucking big ass up there. Yep, I see it. There I am. <laughs> Just fucking so, dude. I Jocko's was showing a picture. Of I would butt. scale up the fucking pole and just try to hold my chin on the bar to do the flex storm hang. And uh, the hilarious part was, I do it so my whole. Oh fuck! This is that's you. This is Jocko. Me. Is the character named John? No, no they Mark. Fucks name smart Mark. ass. But yeah, and, that's, uh, and, and that's exactly what the kid does. His uncle says, "Okay, you can't do any pulls. You're gonna, you're gonna do, you're gonna hang up there. You're gonna hold up there as long as you can and do, do jumping pull ups and." Eventually, you know, how long did it take you before you could get your pull-ups? So the hilarious part is not, I mean, it was good. Thank God. But, uh, I failed sixth grade or I I failed the physical fitness test in sixth grade. So I did it for the entire year. And then, uh, seventh grade, when we went to retest, uh, I fucking jumped up there and I was going to do the fucking flexed arm hang. But when I jumped up there, I did a fucking pull-up and I was like, and I came back down and the teacher was like, that was good. And I did another fucking pull up and I ended up doing whatever it was, like three or four pull ups. Nice. He did like something like fucking eight to pass. I, it was some god awful, but I didn't pass, but I got like, or I didn't get the fucking gold standard, but I did enough to pass the deal. And I remember people were like, wow, you failed last year and you got them. They were like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I was going to do the flex arm fucking hang. 
I was like, I didn't even know I could do a pull-up. And then it's funny, years later, as we go through the whole physiology of like accentuated negatives, priming the nerve, you know, all this bullshit, I'm like, oh, fuck, I just kind of naturally just couldn't keep my big ass up there. But um, similar deal, and you'll, you'll probably laugh at this, probably in your next fucking book, because this would be a funny one. But uh, that, that next year from seventh to eighth grade, um, I was always a pretty decent, pretty fast runner. And you guys have heard the story, but uh, I grew pretty significantly. And all of a sudden, like, I was fucking slow. And I didn't know why I was slow. And I remember going to my mom and I'm like, mom, I used to be fast and now I'm slow. My mom's like, what do you want me to do? I'm like, there's got to be somebody out there that can show me how to run faster. And my mom was like, oh, it's a good, good idea. So she talks to my dad and my dad's like, I'm not fucking paying for that shit. So I remember I, I was like trying to figure this out. And uh, I was so embarrassed because when I got slow, they used to do timed runs. And based on the timed run was the grade. And I remember I went out to do the timed run after I grew a bunch and I fucking failed. And I was so humiliated that I talked to the teacher and I was like, is there something I can do? And she's like, well, if you wanted to come and do the makeup run, I'll give you an extra grade. So you could basically get more points. And so I'd fucking basically lie to my mom, be like, Oh, I got to study after school so I could do an extra run every week. So I could try to get that fucking passing grade. And I remember uh, doing that. And so I ended up getting whatever, like an A and PE. Cause like I couldn't come home with a fucking C or a B and PE. That would have been humiliating. Uh, my mom would have fucking, and Luke knows my mom. She would still fucking ridicule me on this. Yeah, that's a fact. That is yeah, a fact. my mom, one of my uh, buddies, uh, uh, do you know Dave Brewer? Uh, he was one of the Chiefs at Team 4. Uh, uh, he was an East Coast guy, so, you, so you, you might not know him. But uh, Dave comes and hangs out with us and whatever, and my mom's a fucking ball buster. And he's like, dude, he goes, uh, he said to my mom, he's like, I'd like to hire you for Sears School because I'm pretty sure you could break our young guys down. So my mom's just a fucking ball buster. And so I couldn't come home from even a young age. And uh, yeah, so I did these extra runs and then thank God I fucking somehow my coordination picked up and my fucking speed went. But I'm telling you, there was like two or three years there where like I could have used an, I mean, and even though I had older brothers and shit, they were more interested in, in uh, playing football, but I could have used, every kid could have used something like this. Cause I mean, everybody goes through that awkward stage. I don't know. I mean, maybe not you, you fucking probably came out, you know, six years old, ready to be a Navy SEAL, but riding a unicorn. Yeah. Riding a unicorn, fucking, you know, flowing hair, fucking <laughs> knife in his teeth, you know, <laughs> Chuck Norris's fucking spawn. But I'm not kidding you, man. From like six, that like six, seventh and eighth grade, dude, I was so fucking awkward. Like I was uh six foot tall when I was 13 and I grew from like five, like five, seven to like six feet in like that two years. Yeah. So I mean, I sprouted up and sure. uh, dude, I was so fucking uncoordinated. I remember like the thought of trying to hit that baseball when it was coming. I'm being like, I used to be able to hit this thing and now I can't fucking hit this thing at all. And unfortunately, sabotaged. no, but I mean now like looking at it, like understanding the physiology and the training aspect, I would know how to fix that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, like, I mean, and I've, I've coached a fifth, sixth, seventh grade football back in Chicago and those you exist and on every team, yeah. every team, there's that one kid who's just like, this kid's going to be a fucking animal as soon as you can wire it up. And then uh, you follow the guys up in the high school and sure enough, you know, they're knocking skulls if they, if they stick to it or they fucking, they flake out and go mathlete, you know? Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's just, it, it's such a weird thing. Like the, um, uh, and 
we've run into this too with either athletes, you know, when people like, you know, start training and they put on a bunch of body weight and yet they don't continue to do athletic style training. Like they just want to go in and fucking bang weights and bodybuild and power lift. All of a sudden they put on 20 or 30 pounds, but they never did anything in terms of like movement, running, sprinting, kind of change of direction. And then all of a sudden they go out there and they fucking stumble over their feet. And they're like, I used to be athletic. I'm like, yeah, that was 20 fucking pounds ago, dude. Yeah. You know? So, I mean like that athletic development through those, those awkward stages. So no, it's a killer book, dude. I, um, I would, uh, I'll gladly read that one and review view it so jack i want to close with some nutrition stuff because i know on, the, on your podcast you you talk nutrition and advocated the keto approach yeah yeah i mean i i don't like you know i don't like getting into the whole religion around uh around food um but yeah i eat a lot of fat and i don't eat a lot of carbs i like that yeah, and it's because I know. Me too. Yeah, John. As a matter, I, as I'm sitting here right now, it tastes like I'm sucking on pennies. <laughs> if you know what that tastes like, as I'm sure the uh, the ketosis fucking taste of like constantly being like, God, it, did I eat a penny earlier today? God damn it, my fucking breast stinks. So I mean, I guess uh, do, as you're as you're getting listener inquiries, I mean, do you get a lot of feedback on that? Do you got a lot of people who are following who are confused? I mean, because uh, it's something that we find that's one of the the nutritional pr- approaches we promote and advocate that people seem to be so wrapped around the actual. Uh, about. Well, it's because uh, he he made a great point. He said it's like a, like a lot of religion. People uh, have. I mean, dude, people tie food into like such an emotional place that like it uh you know you start talking to people about it and it's like you know you either fucking insulted their religion or slapped their mother or how this and all these problems and you're like dude it's just substance to keep you going man like and uh you know dietary approach i mean most people uh, realistically have been so programmed to think that you know carbohydrates so essential and for a lot of people and a lot of athletes it is but at the end of the day man like if you had to select one macronutrient to survive them on it wouldn't be fucking carbohydrate no. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, you kind of started off talking this, about this today, John, we were kind of like talking about how there's principles that they're just guidelines. And if people use those guidelines, you're, you're going to do pretty good. So I, even though I talk about nutrition, I, I don't like go into any, I don't go into any science behind it. I don't go, I barely even to say like what I actually eat. And yet this is cool. There's people that listen to my podcast. And there's people that listen to my podcast and, and occasionally they'll post a before and after picture. And, and just yesterday, there was probably four or five people that posted before and after pictures and of guys that had lost, you know, between 20 and 60 pounds, I would say. And the way they've done that, they're just like, hey, thanks. This, since I started listening to your podcast, here I am. I'm down 20. I'm down 28. I'm down 32. Only from just hearing me say, hey, don't eat a bunch of carbs, man. And work out every day. That, that's, that's what you got to do. Don't eat much carbs and, and work out every day. And people have, you know, and especially these are people that are living really crappy lifestyles and not working out and eating, you know, uh, donuts every day and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you just get on the basic principles, hey, move some weight arounds every, every day, do some sprints, go for a run. I don't care what you do, do something. And then don't eat all the damn processed sugared foods and you're going to make some good progress. Well, the, uh, what people don't realize is the caloric density and the volume of food you can fucking eat, especially with carbohydrate, like, um, you know, like to sit down and eat, which, uh, I have the worst perception of fucking, uh, proportions. 
So like my wife will be like, how, how big do you think that was? I'm like, I don't know, like three or four ounces. She's like, dude, you just ate a pound. I'm like, really? Huh? Like, like no fucking concept. So like any time, like we try to dial in the macros and try to figure out like total caloric load. Uh, it's, I'm always like, God, that's no idea. That's a, that's a amount of food that fucking kind of hurts my feelings. I wouldn't even cook to fucking have that. And, uh, that kind of blows me away. But I think for most people, um, especially with like a lot of the processed foods and a lot of the carbohydrate stuff, it's so fucking easy to sit down and eat like a, a pound of pasta. I mean, you know, but you ask somebody to eat a pound of rice or, you know, a pound of this and you can kind of go through it. But, um, I, I think just asking people to make better choices, uh, and being like, dude, just, you know, like, uh, the, uh, the old power lifter that trained me in high school made a point. He said, yeah, um, nobody ever got strong eating from a vending machine. That was his big one. And he was always like, if you can stick to one ingredient, which was, uh, he knew, um, What's the guy's name? Uh, uh, the Stone Age Diet, which was uh, Vince Garanda, who was a dude that trained Arnold back in the 60s. And he had Vince's gym in LA. And he coined this thing called the Stone Age Diet, which was fucking paleo diet with, I think, raw milk and handfuls of Diana Ball, as I remember the story going. And uh, so, uh, you know, that idea of like, you know, eat one ingredient, don't eat out of a vending machine, I mean, was kind of, uh, you know, ingrained in us from a fairly young age. And um, no, man, I mean, if you sit down and we have the fucking well thank god it's not me but the task of working with people and helping them with their nutrition and people's perception and we were talking about finding zero finding north people are so i mean beyond fucking anything i've ever run into people have no concept of not only what they're eating how much they're eating and how they're eating and then when they start putting it down on paper are completely lost and and we run into it every day and thank god we have some people that work with us that are really into it because i would fucking shoot myself if i had to do that so how did you find out that uh, you, you're good with no carbs or low carbs? I mean, was it just kind of a – how'd you get there? Uh, believe it or not, it was uh, around 1998. And I was overseas, and there was this, like, old SEAL chief that was like, hey, I don't know what we were talking about, but he's like, hey, eat this. And he, he gave me the old Atkins book, the Atkins diet, right? Sure. I don't know if I was trying to – get bigger, stronger, shredded, whatever I was doing at the time. And um, anyways, that was, and I read it and I was like, well, this is weird. This kind of makes sense. And yeah, I felt good when I did it. Got to eat a bunch of steak and. Which is always good. And then from there, you know, after probably, um, I'd say it started getting to the SEAL teams around maybe 2005, 2006 is when like we started getting nutritionists. We had some actually other nutritionists that were there that were kind of saying the same shit people have been saying for years. And, and then Greens, yeah. balanced carbohydrates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. And I wasn't listening to them. Um, but Hey, uh, uh, not to cut you off, but is there a special place that they send guys in the SEAL teams that are going to be chiefs? Do they send a place to like make them extra fucking crusty? No. And they like chap their ass like because why is it that every fucking master chief and every chief that I've met is so fucking salty that I just wonder if they're like a, a salty process or something that they go through because they just been in the teams for 15 or 20 years and that's, that's so salty it's like dog years right <laughs> I, I just wondered if there was like a special place they said I'm like oh you want to be chief you have to go to the salt academy and we're going to salt you up extreme saltiness oh my god so fucking salty I was thinking the uh, um, Kevin Fields uh, who was uh, one of the, uh, the master chiefs for uh, SDV that I went over and worked with those guys. And I've never in my life met a dude more salty than that guy. It was unreal. He actually had one eyebrow that was white. It was fucking, that's how salty he was. 
legit salt right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, is there anything else you want to, I mean, we've been on it for like almost 90 minutes, maybe a little more. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Jocko? No, man, I'm good. You guys, uh, you know, if people want to hear more of me, it's not hard to find me. So you guys don't need to drag me out any further. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, done fucking talking. Yeah, I mean, my podcast is like two hours long, three hours long, and, and comes out once a week. So you can definitely OD on Jocko if you want to do that. And uh, yeah, books coming out, books out there. You know, I have like the Twitter and all that stuff too. So whatever. I'm Just throw it into Google and we can't miss you, right? Yeah. Not too yeah. Many, there's not too many other uh, Jockos out there doing what you're doing? Yeah, not so much. Well, Jocko, man, thanks. I mean, thanks for taking the time. You, I know you probably appreciate how much time is uh, is valuable for a busy guy like you, and uh, and we appreciate it a little bit more than you do. So, ladies and gentlemen, get down on Jocko and get into his podcast, get into his social media, get into his book, and uh, take some reps. Take some reps. Become be ready to be a leader because you never know when it's going to have to happen. And I guess if you're going to have twelve daughters, you're going to have to know what the fuck you're doing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait, Luke. I can't wait for you. It's to easy. You just get one of those backpack things. Yeah, he's around. like, he's like, how how hard could having kids be? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, Jack. Some. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Better, thank thank you. you. Talk yeah. to you later. All right, see you guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Jocko Willink is no stranger to social media. He can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. This guy's everywhere, spreading the leadership gospel. Be sure to check out his podcast by finding a link in our show notes or just go to jockopodcast2.com. And an update from the Power Athlete Academy. Power Athlete Level 1 is available now. We've sifted through the bullshit, we've gone straight to the legitimate sources, and we've boiled it all down to what works best, all for you. For more information on the course curriculum, head to academy.powerathletehq.com and look for Methodology Level 1. Until next time, bye!